Well, good morning. If you'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4. While you're turning there, I will give you greetings from, from Western Seminary where I get to teach and, and Hinson Church where uh, I, I am a member and, and get to serve as an elder. Um, yeah. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Let me just start by reading um, verse 10 to you. Matthew, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I witness of many of the things of which he writes, though not this particular uh, story, uh, writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Would you pray with me? Father, would you open your word up to us and open us up to your word? that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I'm kind of a sports guy. I'm also a comic guy. I'm I'm not really a comic book nerd, technically. I mean, maybe people who don't like comics at all would think I'm a comic book nerd. Comic book nerds know that I'm not that. I I would be just a total poser. But I will say this, that, 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 that when I was young, I had this fascination with phone booths. And, and maybe some of you did too. Um, and I, as I look out there, I know that almost all of you have seen a phone booth before, but oftentimes when I use this illustration, I have to explain, especially to the millennials, what a phone booth was. It's kind of a weird sort of deal here. A telephone booth was actually this three foot by three foot by eight foot cubicle, and they were on street corners everywhere in America with a phone inside, and you would put like, well, when I first started, a dime and then later a quarter into this, to, the, to the phone, and you could make a call. This was like before cell phones and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, for any millennials that might be out there, you still don't know what a phone booth is, think of the mechanism that Harry Potter used to get to the Ministry of Magic. That was a phone booth. Okay, that was a phone booth. Now, at, at any rate, my, my fascination with telephone booths didn't come from Harry Potter, obviously, because I'm, you know, I'm over 50 years old. Rather, I was intrigued by telephone booths because of Superman, because of Superman. Now, you remember Superman's MO, right? Whenever a crime was committed in his vicinity, what would he do? He would run to the nearest phone booth, he would shed his suit and tie, which was his disguise, basically, and he had his Superman, I guess, costume or uniform or whatever it is that you called it, his cape and spandex, whatever, and and then he would fly out to save the day, right? Are you with me on this? Okay, so I would go look in phone booths hoping to see a suit of clothes, (laughs) which would be proof positive that Superman actually existed, right? Did anybody else do that? No, just me. Okay, that's okay. And, but even back then, I remember wondering, what was Clark Kent's clothes budget like? And, and, and how well-dressed were the homeless of Metropolis, right? Or, or, or maybe he circled back kind of incognito and picked up his clothes, so he only had like one suit. I don't know. Okay, so quiz time for you. This is like the congregation participation time. Assuming that you found a suit of clothes in a phone booth proving the existence of Superman. So I'm, I'm asking you this. We're gonna pretend the comic book world is real, okay? 
was there a human being named Clark Kent? How many of you say yes? Was there a human being named Clark Kent? Okay, how many of you say no? Okay, just, and, and there were like four people participating in my poll here, <laughs> highly scientific. Okay, for the one person who said no, you are correct. You are correct, nicely done here in the front row. Well, the Baptist front row, it's really the second row, but you know. Um, yeah, the, it, even in the comic book world, there was no human being named Clark Kent, right? Because Clark Kent wasn't a human being, was he? He was from the planet Krypton. Clark Kent, Clark Kent, as you know, was just a persona. It was Superman's alter ego. He was not human. He was, who was Clark Kent? Superman in disguise, right? Superman in disguise. Now, people thought when they saw Clark Kent, oh, here's this, this normal human being. He's kind of clumsy and, and humble. But, but of course, he was anything but that, right? He was an alien from the planet Krypton, possessed of superpowers beyond imagination. Now, what does that have to do with gathering here to worship the Lord Jesus Christ on Sunday morning? Okay. Did you know that many in the church, both now and in the past, have had the same idea about Jesus? There are some who read the Gospels in the Bible, even some Christians unwittingly, and they kind of dismiss the talk of the humanity of Jesus. We just don't know what to make of Jesus' humanity. Because Jesus was actually just God in disguise. The, the, the robes or whatever he wore back in the day, that was just a costume. It was a charade. It concealed the reality beneath the disguise beneath the disguise. Jesus appeared to be human, just like Clark Kent. He just seemed to be a man. Now, how many of you, maybe you wouldn't go that far, maybe you would never deny the deity, of, or, or the, the, the humanity of Jesus Christ, but, but maybe this is your picture of Jesus. Stronger than demons, craftier than a Pharisee, able to clear out temples with a single whip. Look, up on the mount, it's Moses, it's Elijah. No, it's son of God, man. Yes, it's son of God, man, strange visitor from up above who came to earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Jesus Christ, who can walk on water, multiply a few loaves and fishes into a meal for thousands, and who disguised as Jesus of Nazareth, mild-mannered itinerant preacher from Galilee, fights a never-ending battle for truth, righteousness, and the kingdom of God. Now, of course, that's like from the Superman show in the back, right? But, but for how many of us is that our picture of Jesus? I suspect that there are many Christians, even well-meaning ones, they might actually have that notion of Jesus but it's actually far from what the Bible reveals about who Jesus is. Now, in the church, if you've grown up in the church, we are really good right now about arguing for the deity of Jesus, you know, because there were the liberals back in the past who denied the deity of Jesus. So, so if you've grown up in the church at all, you're good at arguing for the deity of Jesus, but sometimes I think we've lost track of his humanity. We just don't know what to make of Jesus being human. We're told he's human, but he's not a human like me. I mean, he was the son of God. He was the son of God, which is true, but that doesn't diminish his true and authentic humanity. And in our text this morning, both of those are gonna be on display. So 
if you're here this morning, maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian. I, I, I'd like for you, as we walk through this temptation narrative, narrative, consider the question, what kind of person is Jesus? Was he truly human? Was he only human? What if he were much, much more? For the rest of you, consider the opposite. What does it mean to you that Jesus is both the Son of God, which is going to be evident from this passage, and fully human, which is also going to be evident in this passage? What are the implications for your life and worship? What qualifies Jesus to be the Messiah, our great high priest, the Son of God? Okay, so go back to Matthew 4. Before we get there, we have to give a little context. What is going on at the beginning of Matthew 4? Well, we have to go way back, 1,400 years before the time of Jesus Christ. The children of Israel had left slavery in Egypt and led by their great savior, Moses. They had crossed the Red Sea. They'd entered into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And the question that confronted them every single day was this, were they going to trust the Lord? Now, God daily had provided them with food, miraculously, and daily had provided them with water, oftentimes miraculously. But not, if you remember reading through the Pentateuch, not without grumbling and voicing displeasure at God's timing and his provision. And it's in that context, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5, the same passage that Jesus is going to quote from in our text in Matthew today, God refers to Israel as his son. As his son. And now in our passage, 1,400 years later, a new son is back in the wilderness. And, and this new son of God is going to face tests and he's going to learn the lessons that Israel 1,400 years ago had failed to learn, had imperfectly grasped. Jesus' father is going to test him in the school of privation. And at the end, spoiler alert here, his triumphant rebuttal of the devil's suggestions is going to ensure that the, that father-son bond can survive in spite of the conflict that lies ahead. Jesus has to trust his father. That's being tested in our passage today because later on, Jesus is going to have to trust his father. Jesus has, as we'll see in the passage here, dwelt in the shadow of the Most High, but years later, that's gonna be tested at the cross. Will Jesus trust God? Jesus in this passage is being presented to us as the true son of God, the best and perfect Israel through whom God's redemptive purposes can be fulfilled. And the question that confronts us all along the way is, what kind of son is Jesus? What kind of son is Jesus? So let's look at, at verses one through four. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, 
Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, so that's the first temptation. What's going on here? Jesus is being led by the Spirit. The same Spirit of God who in the previous chapter had anointed him at his his baptism is now leading him into the wilderness. And Jesus is submitting to the leadership of the Spirit. Uh, We also note here, did you you catch this? It's kind of troubling. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness so that he might be tempted. And and that's that's weird to us. So why would God lead Jesus into temptation? Why would the Spirit lead Jesus right into the hands of the devil? Well, throughout Scripture, there's a tension that we find here. God tests you to prove your faithfulness, to strengthen you. But Satan is called the tempter. And it's clear throughout the scriptures that when Satan tempts, his intent is evil. The devil's desire is to do evil, but that is often subsumed by God's good purposes. And, and so I, I don't usually do Greek when I show up and, and preach somewhere, but, but you need to know the word for test and tempt is the same, the same word. Satan tempts, though. God tests. Satan's aims are diabolical. God's aims are good. And so what, right now, we have to conclude that the initiative with God is to test There's divine intention behind this. Now, the devil's hostile intention is to destroy, tempt to sin. But in this passage, because the Spirit has led Jesus into the wilderness in order that he might be tempted by Satan, Satan is being put to the service of God, God's deliberate purpose of testing his son. Does that make sense? At all? I mean, it's, it's kind of hard, but, but I think right, right off the bat, we get some application here. You need to know this. God is sovereign over your trials. God is sovereign over your trials, even over your temptations. Now, I know that we're supposed to pray, um, lead, lead us not into temptation, right? Which is a good thing. We, we don't want to be led into the devil's hands, but you need to know this that even when you are in a moment of testing, a moment of trial, even a moment of temptation, God is in control. He's sovereign over it. God here is using the devil to achieve his good aims. And God and Satan are not equals. In any sense of the word, God is powerful over the devil. And so even when you find yourself in a moment of trial, Have confidence. Be assured that your God who loves you is greater than the one who is seeking to tempt you. Now, in in verse 2, we're we're reminded, uh, I think, we're supposed to be reminded of Israel's 40 years of hunger in the wilderness. We're told that that Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights. And and I think we should note here that, that being the Son of God the second member of the Trinity, that doesn't exempt Jesus from praying and fasting. 
Apparently, this is like a routine part of Jesus' life. Maybe it should be part of ours. I'm not saying go on a 40-day fast or anything like that, but praying and fasting. Jesus prayed. He's our Lord, our Savior, our King. Maybe we should do the kind of things that he did. We also noticed that after 40 days, Jesus is hungry. Now, 40 days is a ridiculous amount of time. I, I just want to point out the fact that here we have a very human Jesus. He doesn't eat. He gets hungry, right? Being the Son of God does not exempt him from human physical needs. But that's what's being put to the test here, isn't it? In verse 3, the devil uses the fasting, which is Jesus' hunger, as an opportunity to tempt, which is weird, right? Because you might think, man, this is like the worst time in the world for Satan to show up to tempt Jesus because, man, he is all prayed up. He's fasted up. It's like this mountaintop experience. But we find out here in the example of Jesus, that obedience and piety are no absolute shield from trials, right? Having that quiet time in the morning doesn't mean Satan is like off limits at this point, right? Like, like Satan knows, oh boy, that, that person prayed this morning. I'm not going to do any trials or temptations or anything like that. No, oftentimes Satan strikes right at that moment, right at that moment. We also note that the devil uses the same title that God used at his baptism. Remember when Jesus was baptized? This is my son whom I love, right? So Satan, Satan knows that Jesus is the son of God. He, he says, if you are, if you are the son of God, well, well Satan knows, right? A better translation of this would probably be since you are. Since you're the son of God, Take some of these stones. Make them into loaves of bread. Now, I've told you that, that Jesus is in the wilderness here. And, and we think, because we're in the Pacific Northwest, oftentimes wilderness is like trees and lush and you get lost and all that. No. Think, uh, the, the wilderness of Israel is like a lunar landscape. Right? It's just, now, now there's lots of rocks too. <laughs> there's rocks everywhere in Israel. And so Satan says, you're the son of God, right? Well, why be hungry? Take some of these stones. There's a bazillion of them. No one will miss a couple. Turn them into bread. Eat. Take care of yourself. See, the question as we read this is not whether Jesus is a son of God. Satan had encountered many sons of God before. Adam in the garden Israel in the wilderness, all of those are referred in Scripture as the Son of God. The question here for Satan is, what kind of son are you? What kind of son are you? So Satan intimates that, that the Son of God, he has no need to be hungry. He can turn stones into bread. But Jesus recognizes in his hunger at that moment an experience that had been designed by God to teach him the lesson of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which is what he quotes here. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is confronted with the question of his immediate needs, but he recognizes that in obeying the Spirit, this was a fast that had been declared by God. And Jesus has to listen to his father. So he quotes scripture to Satan in refusing the temptation. And I think that's probably one of the most obvious for everybody who reads this passage. Applications 
of the passage. How do you fight temptation? Well, you have scripture at your disposal, right? Be like Jesus, WWJD, what would Jesus do, right? If I'm in a temptation, I quote scripture. That's good, solid, godly counsel. We, we, we notice how did Jesus respond to Satan at that moment? Well, here's what he didn't do. He didn't scoff at Satan and tell him he can't be tempted. He didn't run off to a phone booth in the Judean wilderness there and pull off his robe revealing, you know, like the son of God man insignia. He didn't do that. Instead, he does what any man or woman can do. He quotes scripture. But we also notice he didn't quote just any scripture. He quoted the appropriate scripture. He quoted from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8, a perfect application of a passage that had been written like 1,400 years ago because Jesus is in the same context. Those chapters are a record of Moses telling that next generation of Israelites about their parents' struggles in the wilderness. So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. It, it, it originally underscored God's provision of manna as an alternative to the Israelites' reliance on their own abilities to feed themselves. Israel's hunger 1400 years ago had been designed by God to test and prove and strengthen their faithfulness and it was only after they had been hungry for a little while that God chose to feed them miraculously according to his timetable so when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8 it's evidence that he saw his hunger as God's will for his life at that moment and it wasn't to be avoided for self-indulgence, even the self-indulgence of stifling very real hunger pains. I mean, it's been 40 days. It's a long, long time. But to, to do that, to do what Satan suggested would have been to call into question good, God's good priorities for him at that moment. As the son of God, Jesus has to trust and obey God and his purposes. So the question is in this passage, this first temptation, what kind of son are you? And the answer is a trusting son. A trusting son. But Satan's not finished. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, so what's happening here? Satan takes Jesus to a high corner of the temple, and a fall would have been fatal, right? And at this point, Satan does something interesting. He quotes the Bible. He quotes the Bible to Jesus. I mean, Jesus had quoted the word of God at Satan. Well, Satan's like, well, okay, two can play that game. And so Satan quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Just throws it right in Jesus' face. In that Psalm, the Satan quotes, God has promised that he will protect those who, quote, dwell in the shadow of the Most High and abide in the shadow in the shelter of the Almighty. Actually, flip that around. Dwell in the shelter of the Most High, abide in the shadow of the Almighty. What is this? It's a promise of protection from the evil one to keep us from stumbling. That's what Psalm 91 is. Satan knows his Bible. Is that shocking? Can that be? 
Isn't like the Bible to Satan like garlic to a vampire? Like, like all you have to do is just hold it up like this and Satan's like, no, no. Apparently Satan's totally capable of like opening this up and finding the right balance. Oh, I can use this, I can use this. Maybe the Bible's not just automatic blessing regardless of how it's used. Maybe I can't just open up, do this, and, 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 and claim a passage for myself. Maybe if Satan can misuse the Bible, maybe I can too. And if our passage teaches us anything here, it's that the Bible can be used diabolically. Satan is actually using Scripture at Jesus. That's a terrifying prospect, isn't it? So here's what I would say about that. Satan knows the words of God, but he does not know and trust the God of the word. And because of that, he really can't understand or rightly use the word of God. I'll say that again. Satan knows the words of God, but he doesn't know and trust the God of the word. So he can't really understand the word of God. And I think that would, that's, should give us pause to consider our own relationship with the, war, with the word with, and the Lord and then the way that we interpret God's word. If Satan does anything here, it tells us oh, the Bible can be misused for diabolical ends. So let's think about how that might be. Did Satan get the words of Psalm 91 wrong? Maybe he just misquoted it kind of changed a word to make it suit his purposes. And, and we go back and we're like, no, he actually memorized it word perfect. Shoot. Okay. Um, was he wrong in the subject of his application? M- maybe that doesn't actually apply to Jesus. M- maybe it's just to like lesser mortals like you and me. And it's like, well, no, it sure seems as you read Psalm 91 that if it applies to anybody, it would apply to Jesus. Right? He, Jesus is probably the perfect subject of Psalm 91. So, man, that, that can't be it. So, so where's the error? Well, we know that, that, that the Bible should be read in context. We know that. It's God's word. And what I can't do is I can't just read God's word, repeat the words without, their, without any regard to what they actually mean or to whom they're given. And then because I've done that, God has to do what I say. Like God has to obey me. I've used his word, therefore God has to obey me. Now, very few people would actually say that God has to obey them, you know, because you're immortal and and God is God, right? But sometimes we'd never know it by the way that people use God's word. Context is one of the most significant helps and guides when it comes to interpreting the Bible. And I think that's intuitive to everyone, context, right? You've heard... What are the three most important rules in real estate? Location, location, location. What are the three most important rules in Bible study? Really the same, location, location, location. We just, our our word for location is just context. What's, What's the context? And I think that's obvious to everybody, right? How many of you have ever been taken out of context before? You can, this is another, okay. How many of you liked it? No, I've never met anyone who said, man, I was talking to, to Jim the other day and, 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 and then later on he repeated my words, took me totally out of context. It was awesome. <laughs> now, no one ever says that. No one ever says that. How do we know that? Because every time like a politician or a movie star or an athlete, they say something dumb 
What is the first thing that they do to absolve themselves? Oh, I was taken out of context. Because, because everyone knows that to be taken out of context is to have your words misused often against you. Now, most of the time, like 99.999% of the time, they weren't taken out of context. They just said something dumb, right? And, and you wish they'd say, man, I just said something dumb. I'm really sorry. But they don't. They go to the context excuse. Well, as, as we look at this, Satan's not too far off on the context. He understands that a promise made from God is to a servant. But I think he misunderstood the context and the purpose, that is, for which the promise was given. God will keep his promises. But promise, the promises of God are not divorced from his character. The psalm, Psalm 91 that Satan quotes, it's full of language of protection, but it doesn't say that we should court trouble and expect God to bail us out. Scripture is also full of statements like you reap what you sow, right? We shouldn't test God's faithfulness by manufacturing situations where we deliberately try to force God's hand, to force him to act one way or another, especially when we listen to the voice of Satan in manufacturing that thing. We also know that the Bible is to interpret the Bible. Jesus gives a hint on how to interpret when he calls into question Satan's use of Scripture by quoting Scripture himself. The Bible was written by many different human authors, but it was all by inspiration of the one Spirit of God. There are many different human authors working concurrently with the one divine author, God himself, and the one divine author brings continuity of content throughout all of the Bible. And what this means is if you can pit one passage of the Scripture against another passage of Scripture, your interpretation of at least one of those passages of Scripture is wrong, of at least one of them. I should also say quickly that the Scripture is to be read in faith. The Bible is not a collection of impersonal truths about God and people. It was written by a real God with a real character who is personal to real people who know themselves to be personal, like all of us. We're persons. Write that down. You're a person, right? You're a person. So what we believe and know to be true of God, how we know God, that's instrumental in our understanding of God's word. The Bible is meant to be read in community. It's to be read in relationship with one another and with God. And, and if we read the scriptures doubting God's good character, his goodness, how can we hope to understand and apply God's word to our circumstances? The words of our loving God might sound like the words of a tyrant. Remember in the Lord of the Rings when Gandalf is talking to Bilbo, this, this little, little guy who's been tasked with this difficult thing, and he says, I think it's time for you to give up the ring. I think it's time, Bilbo, for you to give up the ring because it was eating away him, rotting him. But Bilbo had come to love that ring so much that, the, that he's threatened by the words of Gandalf. He accuses Gandalf of trying to rob him of the ring. Now, Gandalf has been a good friend his entire life. And Gandalf says, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, the Bible describes you as an enemy of God. And your only hope is to hear and to understand the voice of God and heed the voice of the good shepherd who calls you to himself. He is good. If you're already a follower of Christ, you, you need to recognize that you're standing before God. It doesn't, doesn't guarantee right interpretation of the scriptures or understanding. You have to approach the scriptures with a posture of trust and dependence on God's goodness 
and his power, his plan. And I think that's where Satan got it wrong and Jesus gets it right. Because in, in Satan's quest to derail the purposes of God in Christ, Satan presented Jesus with this option. Will Jesus be the Lord of God himself or will Jesus submit to God's authority? Is God there to serve the Son or is the Son there to serve the redemptive purposes of God? The focus of Satan's temptation is on the relationship between the Father and the Son. And the Son of God could only live in a relationship of trust that ultimately would need no test. Jesus needed to trust the Father will never actually abandon me. Jesus needed to be able to live in that trust because there would come a time where Jesus would have to trust God when he didn't feel his presence. The psalm here is full of language of protection. Jesus needed to trust that God's word was true even when he didn't feel it. Jesus believed the promise of Psalm 91 but he disputed the validity of Satan's use of the Bible. In Exodus chapter 17, verses one through seven, when Israel was in the wilderness, they wanted water. Moses responded, why do you test the Lord? Why do you doubt his goodness, his provision, his plan? Jesus in the wilderness would not do that. What kind of son is Jesus, the kind of son who trusts even when he doesn't feel it. Finally, verses eight through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I'll give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Satan takes him up on a place where he can see everything, and it's instructive that Satan showed Jesus all their glory, he says. I'll give this to you. I'll give this to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. Can, can Satan actually offer that to Jesus? Yeah, at least that moment, it seems like he probably could have, I suppose, because right now, the Bible describes Satan as the king of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the world. What the devil was offering, though, was not sphere for service, but the highest status, to be king of kings. Of course, it's prophesied throughout the Old Testament that the royal Messiah would exercise universal dominion and be given universal glory. So Satan offers to Jesus something that Jesus knows is actually coming to him. But Jesus didn't come to ally himself with Satan. He came to contest the dominion of the devil. And to avoid that contest by compromise, that's the test. And it's a crucial test of Jesus' loyalty to his father. Israel had fallen into temptation time and time again by denying their exclusive loyalty to God. But the true son can't compromise his loyalty. And so he sharply dismisses the devil. He uses the name which reveals his true purpose. You're the Satan, the adversary, my enemy. And it's interesting in the temptation, you notice that there's no, if you are the son of God, <laughs> right, do this. It's like Satan's just desperate. Look, look, if you'll just fall down and worship me, I'll give you all this stuff. 
But worshiping Satan is completely at odds with true sonship. There's no subtlety here. It's a simple choice of allegiance right now. It's an offer of a good end through an absolutely wrong means. The good end, Jesus, be king of kings and lord of lords. That's good, isn't it? But the path there is demonic. And as we're reading this, we should hold our breath. Because really the gospel is at stake right now in Jesus' test. If Jesus fails at this point, if he takes the easy path, he cannot be your savior. The one who fulfills the redemptive purposes of God. He might be king of kings, but he would rule as a devil. Why is that? Because of the logic of the gospel. Jesus came to reconcile you to God. He came to lift the curse, to exhaust the wrath of a holy God against sin and rebellion, to not merely make possible God's forgiveness, but to create for God a people able to and worthy of living in that kingdom. Now, now of course, Jesus would actually receive that name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, after the cross. All the glory that Satan offered and a bunch more would be Christ but only after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And here the devil tries to seduce him with instant power and success apart from the cross. And Satan regularly tempts that way, promising something in exchange for something diabolical. But the price here is damning your eternal soul. Only God is to be worshiped. I mean, that's the way sin is, right? The popular Puritan saying was, sin promises like a God, but it pays like the devil. Jesus prefaces his quotation with a direct command. He will not worship Satan, far from it. He will command Satan to depart. Isn't that funny? If you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all this. And what does Jesus do? He commands Satan to be gone. He's not just terminating the dialogue. He sends Satan away. I love verse 11. Did you notice that? Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. You know that angelic hope that was promised in Psalm 91? Well, what do you know? God keeps his promises. We should conclude. I'll say it this way. Jesus, what kind of son is Jesus? He's the kind of son we need. He's not the son we deserve. We're told that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And the importance of this is that we now have a high priest who knows precisely what it's like to be tempted. He has felt the full weight of your struggles. In fact, because he didn't give in to temptation, he has felt all your struggles and more. I mean, we know this, right? What's the easiest way to get rid of temptation? Give in, temptation goes away. But then it comes back harder the next time, doesn't it? Harder and harder each time. Where you have given in, Jesus kept fighting all the way, never once giving in. He quite literally exhausted himself in his battle with temptation, and he died fighting Satan. In the biblical book of Job, we'll finish with this. We're introduced to Job. He's a a character who went through horrible trials, He spends the majority of his book requesting an opportunity to present his case before God. And at one point, he calls out for an arbiter. He says, 
I, I need to make my case before God. But how can I do that? He says, what I need is an arbiter. I need someone to stand in the middle. Chapter 9, verse 33 says, there's no arbiter between us, between me and God, who might lay his hand on us both. I need right now, I need someone who can put his hand on God, who like knows what it's like to be God, but who can put his hand simultaneously on me, who knows what it's like to be human. That's what I need because I can't talk to God on my own. Not like this. I can't plead my case before God. Who can do that? I need someone who can lay his hand on us both. You know the unfortunate thing for Job? That person didn't exist. But for us, he does. The Son of God incarnated into a human. Jesus Christ, who is fully God, knows what it's like to be God, can put his hand on God himself, so to speak, is also simultaneously fully human, just like you and me, who knows what it's like to be you, who knows what it's like to face temptation, never pulling the God card out of his pocket to avoid a trial, but facing temptation like you and I are supposed to, like a human. That's Jesus. Jesus is qualified to be our savior, qualified to be our great high priest, qualified to be our king. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we're, we are stunned at, at just the, the, the faithfulness, the loyalty, the submission of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're grateful for it because we know that if Jesus would have said no, it would have disqualified him from atoning for our sin. We pray, Father, that, that, that we would delight in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would worship him, that we wouldn't see this passage as merely an instruction manual for how to fight temptation, but that we would be drawn into worship of the great God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was loyal to you to the very end and remains loyal even now, our great high priest, the King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen.